Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from Talk Sport as we review the Premier League weekend. I'm Sam Matterface and I'll be in the company of the Talk Sport football correspondent Alex Crook and the assistant editor of The Mirror, an all-round nice guy, Darren Lewis. Let's get to it because there's so much to talk about. This is the headline maker. This is the one that everyone's going to be talking about around the water cooler on Monday when you go to work. Scored against the club that sold him last summer to put Nottingham Forest into the lead. It's a dreamy day for Cooper and Co. and for Nottingham Forest. Here's Iwobi inside the area. Bad flick for McNeil. Fantastic third goal. That sets the seal on the three points. Kevin De Bruyne about 20 yards out. He's just killed a beautiful goal into the top corner. Absolutely phenomenal. Manchester City three, Brighton of Albion one. Chelsea won, Manchester United won. They've got themselves an equaliser deep into stoppage time. Casemiro, I think it is, who's got the touch. Wolves nil, Leicester four. And yes, Jamie Vardy is on the mark for the first time. In fact, since the last day of last season. And there goes the final whistle. Listen to... To the reaction here, booze all around Ellen Road, leads two, Fulham three. Aston Villa four, Brentford nil, it's Ollie Watkins who's got his name deservedly on the score sheet. The top Arsenal after a 1-1 draw here at Southampton, only for the second time this season did the Gunners drop points. Newcastle defended well and finished the day fourth in the table, a great game of football, Tottenham one, Newcastle two. Gentlemen, let's start with Spurs against Newcastle. Ah, listen, we did the podcast on Thursday, uh, Crookie. We were talking about this game in particular. I was convinced that Newcastle were going to win it. I think most people who have watched Spurs over the course of the season were too. It came as no surprise that Newcastle took all three points at the lane. Is that your way of saying "I told you so," Crookie style? I was just following. I was just following your your your, your modus operandi. I think that was that's the way forward. Martin Keown says it's not a good look, but you know what? I thought I'd try and help you out and take a bit of the limelight off you because I know you got a bit of a kicking as a result of that. To be fair, Martin Keown is the master of uh, what's not a good look, so uh, I will take his uh, <laughs> his advice and opinion on board. Uh, it's not a good look for Spurs, is it? At the moment, back to back defeats and. I think Newcastle deserve their win, to be honest. I think Spurs were fortunate to only lose by one. Yeah, this is uh, because Crook and I filled in for White and Jordan on Friday and Martin Keown uh, basically told uh, Crook to stop saying, I told you so. Um, look, it's another side in the top 10 that Tottenham have slipped up against. Um, Conte said afterwards, Darren, I need money. I need time. I need patience. Um, it's three defeats in five Premier League games. Is that uh, a fair sort of 
reflection of where Spurs are. He said to me on Wednesday night in the tunnel at Old Trafford, look, we're just not at that level yet. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I actually expected Spurs to win. I have to be honest, uh, a really poor performance to go with the defeat against Manchester United in midweek. So I expected a reaction in this game and we didn't get it. But I do think that Conte's always been consistent about the fact that he, he he will need more than one transfer window to turn things around. There are players he's always said he needs at the club that he didn't get in the summer. Bastoni, the centre-half at Inter Milan, he's a big fan. He needs leadership in that defence. He doesn't have it at the moment, particularly when Romero's not available to him. He also needs a creative midfielder. He doesn't have one. That would stop Harry Kane dropping into midfield and not being where he should be in a penalty box like Erling Haaland. So there are other pieces to be put into that jigsaw, but you're talking about three defeats in five games. I think Spurs will take being third in the Premier League at the moment, given the run they're on. Um, Newcastle, excellent, and they've bought incredibly well. They've pieced together a squad sensibly, despite the fact everyone's talking about their new wealth and they've got so much to spend. They've actually put together what is a very sensible squad that has been well coached and they've got a great framework. Um, congratulations to uh, Eddie Howe for doing that. I think his biggest magic trick though, Crook, is bringing the best out of the Paraguayan international, Miggy Almiron. He scored six goals this season. Now, either it is Eddie Howe's brilliant coaching or it is Jack Grealish's barb. Which one was it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll go for Eddie Howe's coaching. Um, listen, if Jack Grealish in any way has fired Miggy Almiron up, then I'm sure Newcastle and their fans are grateful. But he is just about, probably alongside Granite Xhaka, the most reborn player in the Premier League. It was a brilliantly taken goal. He's banging form. Newcastle fans always had a soft spot for him, actually, just because of his work rate and endeavour. But he's backing that up now um, in terms of what he's producing in front of goal. And uh, there's a title for Eddie Howe's autobiography, isn't there, if, if Newcastle can see this through and qualify for the Champions League from Bournemouth to the Bernabeu. All right. <laughs> You're obviously offering to write it. Um, <laughs> Hi, Eddie. Uh, it's Alex here. Remember me? We used to hang out in Portsmouth back in the day. Do you need a ghostwriter? I've got a great title. <laughs> we'll see how you get on with that. I like it. Um, Callum Wilson, impressive again. Um, obviously, there's so much competition uh, for places at that top end now in the England squad, which is great. Callum Wilson, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, trying to get behind uh, Harry Kane, Tammy Abraham, et cetera, et cetera. Um, shame there's not as much competition in the defensive battalion, but anyway, that's another story. Let's talk about that first goal, though, because there was a little bit of confusion, VAR. I was standing in the TalkSport offices as uh, Callum Wilson went running towards goal, and Hugo Lloris got a little bit of a rush to the uh, rush of blood to the head came steaming out, collided with Callum Wilson. I must admit, they looked at it so much that I thought they're going to rule it out. They're going to rule it out. It was never a foul for me. What did you think, Darren? I agree with you. It was never a foul. Um, I think as far as Lloris is concerned, I tweeted about it yesterday. He's got at least one Rick in him, uh, as, as world-class as he might be. Every so often, he has these rushes of blood that cost his team. I was at a couple of games last season... He's won the World Cup, but even in the World Cup final, we threw one in. I, 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 it really wouldn't surprise me if long-term um, Antonio Conte were looking for a, a younger, newer keeper. Fraser Forster's a number two. He's not a number one. Um, and I think 
particularly if you want to aspire to the kind of thing that Conti aspires to, you need a consistent keeper who's not going to do that kind of thing. It was a goal all day long. Yeah, it was a goal and he was at fault for the second goal as well. The first one, not a foul for me. I mean, Ben Foster tweeted yesterday, that has to be ruled out. Um, I completely disagree with that. Why is a goalkeeper protected? He ran into Callum Wilson. There was no attempt to get out of the way. Callum Wilson couldn't do anything. He couldn't go anywhere. It's not his fault. The fact that Laurie's completely sort of got floored by it. It's, you know, it's about, it is a physical game at the end of the day. And also if you run into someone, that's your problem, not not theirs. Um, Newcastle were excellent. I wonder how high they can finish. They haven't got the distraction of European football. A couple of their players might go away to the World Cup, but there won't be as many that go away to the World Cup as there are in some of the other top teams, Crook. No, absolutely. And I think it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting. I think we're going to get some freak results come January. And those teams, I look at Bournemouth, for example, only got two players who are going to the World Cup. So they've got an opportunity to do a bit of warm weather training, almost have a mini pre-season so clearly the, the, the squads who aren't going to be decimated by World Cup call-ups should be in a better position to hit the ground running when football returns. One unsung hero for Newcastle, someone I think has been excellent this season, by the way, is the man who made the first goal with that long ball up to Callum Wilson. Fabian Cher has been a real hero in that back four. Where can they finish? I don't think the top six is beyond the realms of fantasy, but if they, if they are to do that, then one of the established big six are, are going to miss out. Could be mm. Darren's beloved Liverpool. It probably won't be Arsenal, who drew 1-1, dropping points uh, for only the second time this season. They're two points ahead of Manchester City in the table. They do still lead the league, but they did play poorly, especially second half against Southampton. They actually should have won the game in that first 45 minutes. I know, Crook, you were commentating uh, on that, and I was covering it for the Sunday session. I thought they were uh, brilliant in the first half, very quick. Caused problems for Southampton. Southampton were lucky to still be in the game after 15 minutes. And then they slackened off. They're a little bit passive. And I wonder, Darren, if they're a little bit, and it was 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, and then 1-1 the last four games for Arsenal. I wonder whether they've slowed a little bit because Mikel Arteta has insisted in playing some of their bigger hitters in the Europa League on Thursday nights in this bid to get... I think you might be onto something. I think you might be onto something there because I think um, there have been one or two games in the Europa League where I've been surprised to see some of the bigger hitters in the Europa League. If you um, if you're a West Ham, maybe you want to keep both you you want to cover your bases on in both competitions. But if you're Arsenal and you're going great guns and the priority is to finish in the top four, well, really you want to keep all your your biggest weaponry for that competition. And yeah, I have been, it doesn't surprise me that they've hit a wall because they've not gone the course and the distance before. And I say this every time people say, can Arsenal beat City to the league? City have won four of the last five Premier Leagues. They know how to negotiate this terrain. Arsenal haven't. They're novices as far as this is concerned. So they were always going to hit a wall. But I think you're right. It doesn't help that they've been playing some of their bigger hitters in the Europa League and not keeping them fresh to maybe go as far as they can. Should they have had a penalty, Crook? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was almost identical to the Scott McTominay challenge that gave Chelsea their penalty the day before, which I'm not going to argue about. I thought it was naive, lazy defending from McTominay. And it We're was the same. Yet. We're not there yet. Don't no. start trying to get you little defence in early. <laughs> no, no, not, con- no defence. It, it was a penalty. on what we're doing. It was a penalty at Stamford Bridge and it should have been a penalty at St. Mary's. And this is 
this is where it gets so infuriating is the inconsistencies. You know, what's what's given as a penalty one day is not given as a penalty 24 hours later. And clearly that was decisive to the outcome because if Arsenal get the opportunity to go 2-0 up, Southampton don't come back. I think the big difference between Arsenal and Manchester City, and I was expecting a flood of calls from moaning Arsenal fans on our programme on Sunday night, didn't happen because I think they accept the fact that actually City will win the league. And if they finish in the top four, which they're very much on course to do, that would be seen as a sign of progress. But the difference is, in that opening half an hour, when they ran all over Southampton, City would have been 3-0 up and the game would have been put to bed. Arsenal don't seem to have that clinical edge um, in terms of putting teams to the sword. They've not really done that on too many occasions this season. And Gabriel Jesus, by the way, the goals have, have really dried up for him. Is it none in four now, I think, in the Premier League? Well, the thing about Gabriel Jesus is, and I said this at the beginning of the season, I, I don't think that you can have a go at him because he's done a brilliant job. He's been one of their best players. Martinelli's been excellent. So has Saka. He leads the line so brilliantly and leads the press so well. And he does so much work off the ball. He has got, what, five goals so far this season. But Darren and I had a little bit of a, a to and fro about it. And the reason I suggested he wouldn't get 20 goals was because I, I thought he would go through lean spells. And because, and then this is not being unfair to him, nobody gets 20 goals. Go back over the course of the last 10 years and look how many players have got 20 goals in the Premier League. It doesn't happen. It happens to two or three people maybe every year. Sometimes it only happens to one. It's not something that happens regularly because it's not that sort of league. We don't have a Lewandowski uh, uh, who comes in and scores 17 goals in, in, in 15 games until now, um, where Haaland obviously is ripping it up and scoring a ridiculous number of goals. But Jesus isn't that kind of striker. So he is going to be different. He's not going to score as many goals and he'll go through spells a little bit like this. But do you think, Darren, one of the issues is, is that they're quite a young squad and therefore that sometimes, you know, it, it is going to catch up with them. It is going to sort of lead to a little bit of inconsistency. Can I just pull you up ever so slightly? You said nobody scores 20 okay, goals. Okay. Two people did it last season. Two people did it the season before. Exactly. Four people did two it the season three do before it. that. Um, there's there's the 40 strikers years. in the league and two two people do it a, a year. It's, it's not that no, many. But you, said that, but you did say nobody scores 20 goals. Lots of people scored 20 goals in this league. You know what I said? You know what I said? Very few people do it. Um, but uh, listen, uh, listen, we're spreading the love today, aren't we? And, uh, you know, I think it's probably time oh, yeah. uh, that we gave uh, Crook the opportunity to uh, talk about Ralph Hasenhutl, uh, who has uh, gone on an unbeaten run of uh, three games now. Let's talk. Come on. Come on, Crook. You and Ralph. Yeah. Let's get it on. Let's go. Listen, I think he deserves credit. As you say, five points from three games, uh, two of them difficult home games against West Ham and Arsenal and a South Coast derby, which wasn't easy to navigate either, especially with so much background noise. He was jeered by his own fans in midweek, which I thought was disgraceful when they were winning away from home, a team short of confidence who needed the support of those travelling supporters. Do I think he'll still be Southampton manager on January the 1st? Probably not, um, but I think he's proved some of his doubters wrong. And I thought they were excellent in the second half. I thought the back uh, four were all terrific. Lianco in particular really ruffled the feathers uh, of the Arsenal supporters. They thought he should have been sent off on at least two occasions. But I think Southampton needed that physicality. Uh, Stuart Armstrong, first goal in 
21 games, really well-worked team goal. And actually, the substitutions that he made at the end of the game, Adozi in particular, really made an impact. Southampton could even have won it. So, yeah, credit where it's due to Ralph Hasenhutl. And uh, I'm pleased for him because I think some of the some of the stuff that's come out has been a little bit too much. Uh, you have to remember the mental side, that this is a human being that we're talking about who's done a good job for Southampton for four years. Darren... I'm a bit concerned that uh, after us giving him the opportunity to wax lyrical about how great Ralph Parsonhutl is, we sacked him uh, midway through that conversation, almost sort of in an understated way. Uh, yeah, but he's going to be out of a job by the time we get to January. Uh, if it, I've sort of noticed, I don't know if you've thought about this, but uh, the teams that have changed their managers actually have struggled a, just a, just a little bit, whereas the teams that have kept hold of their managers have actually gone through the cycle and sort of seen through it a little bit. And I'm talking mainly about um, Brendan Rodgers and Leicester City have got, gone through it. Whereas, you know, the, the team like Wolverhampton Wanderers who sacked their managers, obviously seemingly without an idea as who's going to replace them, have suffered even further. I wonder whether Southampton have got an idea of who will come in because there seems to be a dearth of very good managers who could replace Ralph Parson. Can I just say before Darren responds to that, what I don't think will happen when it comes to Southampton, we're not going to see a Steven Gerrard situation. They're not going to suddenly lose a game and 20 minutes later we get a statement saying that Ralph Harsenhutl has been sacked. If he does move on, it will be uh, part of a clear and structured plan. They will know who they want to replace him. They will have that replacement lined up and they will do it in the right manner. It's not going to be a reactive sack. They'll do it nicely. They'll do it nice. They'll send him a card, a bunch of flowers, maybe someone around with a, a hamper from Fortnum and Masons. Um, brilliant. Um, but they'll still fire him. Um, yeah, I mean, getting the succession plan right is important, isn't it, Darren? It is. It is, because I think as far as Southampton are concerned, they've always had um, a model to work towards. It hasn't been the case that somebody comes in with different ideas that mean they have to rip up their structure. Um, when things were going superbly well and they were hurtling up the table, lots of people applauded that. Um, they don't quite get the same credit that they still deserve for that model because results haven't gone or have been as spectacular as, for example, they were under Pochettino. So if they do decide to get rid of Hassan Hudl, then it might be it will be the case that they're going to have to get somebody who understands what the model is. But I think you were right, um, Sam, in so much as I don't think there is any... Well, both of you were right. I don't think there's anything to be served by getting rid of Hassan Hootl. I think there hasn't really been a marked improvement with the sides that have got rid of their managers necessarily. People will say, well, Villa won 4-0 at the weekend. Personally, I still... I know we're going to get to Villa. I know we're going to get to Villa, but, but I just think the club should have given him time to get some of those players out and to get his players in. And if you look at Arsenal, Arsenal struggled. There were multiple occasions last season when they could, and many people felt they should have sacked Arteta, but they stuck with him. And this is where they are now, top of the league, and flying with a younger squad and a better attitude. And I think that if they stick with Hassan Hootl, he will get them through the other side of this. Yeah, I was just alerted to it on Friday when uh, Crook and I were doing the White and Jordan show and I saw a comment from Brendan Rodgers when he said, you know, it seems that every time you pick up a paper, every time you have a conversation, there is another manager who is under pressure. So once one manager wins a game, it's looking around who's next on the chopping block. And maybe we're a little bit guilty of that as well. But ultimately, 
it doesn't always need to be like that. I mean, Brendan actually probably is proving the point that you can sometimes see through a sticky patch. And I was going back through the history books and Leicester had their worst start since 1983, right? But in 1983, when they started as badly as they started this season, they didn't sack their manager. Their manager stayed for another two years after that. You know, and, and ultimately, that's what it used to be like. That's what this country did in, in terms of their, their football managers. And we've got a little bit knee-jerk in the way that we've almost and taken from Italy this idea that a new coach, a new manager can come in and refresh everything. Actually, you know what? Maybe we're in the mood, even as a country now, for a little bit more stability. Um, someone who has come in and tried to continue uh, a trend from a previous manager is Jesse Marsh. Leeds were beaten, though, again, at home by Fulham by three goals to two on Sunday. Eight games now without a win for Jesse and his troops. Six defeats in that time. They've picked up two points since those giddy heights have beaten Chelsea at Elland Road. Um, I've, I've said it to you uh, before. I, I actually don't think they're that bad, Leeds. They have good spells in games and there's moments where I think they look like a really good team. But there are other moments where they're just far too open. And yesterday, it was obvious from the first minute that Fulham were going to have them. Now, it took a while actually for Fulham to to put them to the sword and they conceded the first goal. But I actually thought this game's so obvious, they're going to open up and Fulham are going to get in behind them and score goals. And Mitrovic obviously is a handful. They did exactly that. They ended up winning the game and uh, they won it well in the end, Crook. Yeah, they did. And uh, Fulham, I think I'm right in saying, as we, as we record this, a seventh in the Premier League table. They're 18 points on the board, probably halfway to safety. So Marco Silva deserves a lot of credit for what he's done uh, there this season. But I'll stick by what I said on Friday when it comes to Jesse Marsh. He was brought in to do a job last season. They were going down under Marcelo Bielsa. I mean, absolutely no doubt about that. Marsh kept them up. Um, obviously, they backed him in the summer. They brought in a lot of players that he knows from his time in, in Germany and uh, some Americans as well. And I think he does need time. You know, I think it's far too early to make a judgment on Jesse Marsh. Yes, they're on a bad run. It wasn't that long ago. They played Chelsea off the park at Ellen Road. So there is something there. And again, you know, I think Leeds fans have short memories. Those chanting negative comments towards Jesse Marsh in the last couple of games, he literally kept you up last season. So give the guy a break. Sacked in the morning at full time. Uh, similar chance in the away end at Leicester on Thursday night. I don't think Jesse Marsh does himself too many favours with the sort of over aggressive portrayal that he, the demeanour that he strikes on the touchline. Um, but I do think that he does need a little bit more time because this is this is clearly someone who has been bought into by the the Leeds board. Uh, he seems to think he's got the full backing of them. Um, and I do believe that actually, you know. We had a phone call yesterday on the Sunday session. We always take phone calls at four o'clock after the 2 p.m. games. And there was a Leeds fan who rung up and said, we should be beating teams like Fulham and Crystal Palace. We're Leeds United. We deserve more than this. And at one point I just said, hold on, fella, you do remember that there was a 16-year period where you weren't in the top flight. Those teams were. So you can't live on your history. You're still a massive club. You've still got a great support. You are big in the game. But at this moment in time, you're a club that's rebuilding slowly to get themselves to be staple diet, part of the staple diet of the Premier League again, Darren. Not necessarily looking to achieve a top 10 finish. Leeds United's biggest aim this season is staying in the division again. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 some of the delusion that I'm hearing, and, and, and fans may listen to this and say, oh my goodness, so you're saying we're deluded for wanting our team to win matches? Of course not. What I'm saying is, 
represents delusion is the idea that the first season back in a Premier League is going to be plain sailing because it isn't. You're making a huge step up into a division where if you make a mistake, you are punished. It's unforgiving. It's relentless. The intensity of the top division is so tough for teams to deal with that you can't just cope with it after one transfer window. Yes, some teams do have a good run of form, like a Bournemouth, but like a Fulham. But, you know, Bournemouth, one of their managers got sacked too soon, I would add, because Gary, uh, Gary O'Neill is showing that you can make it work if you have the right, a little bit of patience and, and, and the right set of skills. I just think as far as uh, Jesse Marsh is concerned, he will get things right, but they've got to be patient with him. And you know what? I mentioned Arsenal earlier. Maybe most teams, maybe all teams should do a documentary to show what clubs go through season in, season out, so that supporters can understand the context of what is a roller coaster ride. There are too many fans who believe Premier League football is easy when it takes experience, know how, quality, and a little bit of luck. Aston Villa 4, Brentford 0. Steven Gerrard sacked on Thursday. Aston Villa started like a train on Sunday. Now, Gerrard lost his last four games, scored one goal. 14 minutes without him, they scored three goals. I mean, the, the players clearly have responded to the sacking. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing, actually. I mean, obviously, I, I, I think we've all sort of discussed the, the man management situation with Stephen and the Tyra Mings thing and the damage that obviously did do. And, you know, the dressing room, we hear stuff that, you know, comes out of that dressing room and it did have a, a damaging effect. But just the whole sort of demeanour that he had around the training ground didn't particularly work with, resonate with, with some of the players. I mean, it it looked like an obvious decision to replace him now, and obviously the response has been great. Does it tell us something about the players that they could click into gear, bearing in mind most of those players were involved under Stephen? Yeah, Darren Ambrose got a bit of stick from uh, Villa fans on the boot room on Sunday for labelling the Villa players a disgrace. But I kind of understand where he's coming from because as much as I didn't think Steven Gerrard was a particularly good manager for Aston Villa. You compare the performance at Fulham, even without the sending off, which has obviously subsequently been overturned, which will be a source of frustration for Gerrard. You compare that performance to what we saw, particularly in the first half on Sunday. It's hard to believe that it was largely the same team. So I do think the players need to have a look at themselves. The flip side is, well, clearly Steven Gerrard wasn't doing his job properly because he wasn't able to motivate the players to produce that kind of display. And there were a couple of tactical tweaks as well. Villa fans calling in were saying John McGinn should have been taken out the side a long time ago. That surprises me because I watch him a lot for Scotland and he's one of their key men. Uh, Coutinho, less surprising. Villa fans are saying Stephen Gerrard gave him far too much time, far too many minutes. So I think that, you know, the caretaker team deserves some credit for making those tactical changes. It was a really good Aston Villa performance. But I tell you what, you know, we're talking about relegation. I think there are 10 or 11 teams who could be in the relegation scrap this season. And when Brentford are bad, they are really bad. And I don't think Ivan Tony was over-egging it when he described their performance as a shambles. They were terrible. Truly awful away from home. No wins away uh, this season. Um, look, we didn't get to chat too much about Stephen Gerrard on uh, Thursday, Friday's pod, because of uh, the overnight experience with the game being on Thursday night, Darren. But um, I do feel a little bit for Stephen because he is a, 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 a someone, a Premier League legend who I think the game should cherish and use and get the best out of. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think Villa are doing it all wrong. Uh, I, I think that if you bring somebody into your football club and you give them the mandate to change things, then you've got to give them the time to change things as well. Um, I don't think yesterday was particularly impressive. Yesterday simply tells me that the players were not doing enough for Steven Gerrard. And when you bring a manager into your football club and you need to give him the time to bring in his players, some of those players didn't want to play for him. Perhaps he should have been given the time to send them to other clubs and to bring in the ones that he wanted. Um, and, and lots of people say, oh, the players should look at themselves. The players won't because they never do. They just do a job and it's far easier to get rid of the manager than the players. But he, he didn't get enough time. He lost his centre-half as soon as he bought him from Sevilla in the summer. Coutinho's let him down badly. McGinn, it wasn't a good fit. I don't necessarily blame him. He gave him the captaincy. He, was, he is a good player, as you've been saying, Crook. Um, and the forwards haven't been scoring enough goals and suddenly they start scoring yesterday. Um, let's see if they can keep this run up. But I think that there was a reason that Steven Gerrard was there in the first place. You could argue they didn't give Dean Smith enough time after he'd taken him up. They threw him over the board at the first yeah. sign of trouble. They are doing it all wrong at Villa. They've panicked again. And the caliber of player of manager they want in, people are talking about your Thomas Franks and your Pochettinos. Why would they go to a club that quivers at the first sign of trouble and throws you overboard rather than giving you time to build a team, build a philosophy and build a long-term structure that is stable? Darren, that is like a text message conversation that Crook and I had just last week. Why would Thomas Frank, why would Maurizio Pochettino go and work at Aston Villa when Thomas Frank has got a really good situation at, at Brentford? Maurizio Pochettino can stay on the sidelines for a little bit longer and wait for a, one of the big jobs to come up. It's something will come up eventually. What can he achieve with Aston Villa? What can anyone achieve with Aston Villa the way it's being run at this moment in time? The owners keep telling us that they're ambitious. Well, I didn't see that ambition during the summer in terms of outlay of new players. I actually spoke to Steven Gerrard in the tunnel um, at the city ground a couple of weeks ago. And I said to him, is one of the problems that you didn't get enough during the summer. Now he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that that was the case because he's not that type of guy. He's not going to throw the ball under the bus. But what he did say was, well, I don't really want to talk about that. Now, he, what he didn't say was, no, I got everything that I wanted. Managers never do get everything they want, but he, he, could, he could have said something slightly different. The indication was he didn't get as much as many people thought they were going to get. Kamara, well sought after across Europe. They got him well done. That was a good deal. Diego Carlos, good deal. What else did they get, really? In the overall scheme of, things what else did they get to add to that squad that had been you know fighting relegation had been struggling in the mid table if they want to be ambitious they want to go forward they needed more investment uh, wolves nil leicester city four patience is a virtue brendan rogers stand up fella take a bow 10 points from 15 well done back to back wins for leicester huge boost for rogers out of the relegation zone Terrific interview afterwards, as always, with Brendan, who's very good at fronting up, saying, we were always calm. We make sure that we are being a little bit sensible about things and never getting overexcited. The truth of the matter of this game is, is that actually Leicester weren't that good. <laughs> they won 4-0 with four shots on target, started off by one of the goals of the season from Yuri Tielemans. Oh, 
What a strike that was, um, by the way. A uh, few points on this game. Four clean sheets in five games now. I think uh, Valt Fass, who had a bit of a shocker in the game that I covered at Bournemouth, has uh, quickly acclimatised to the Premier League. I think he's been a massive uh, influence on their defence. Uh, and Danny Ward, like Brendan Rodgers, actually, I kept faith with Danny Ward in my fantasy team because he's cheap. And he started to reward me now uh, with a couple of clean sheets. And, and credit to Brendan Rogers. Hold on, be- hold on, hold on. You said he was the worst number one in the Premier League. <laughs> I did, but I kept him in the team. And uh, and credit to Brendan Rogers because he has rebuilt Ward's confidence and he's starting to, to actually look like he can be a Premier League goalkeeper. But you're right to mention that uh, Leicester weren't perhaps as good as the scoreline suggests. Wolves, in contrast, had about 300 shots on goal and couldn't score. <laughs> Therein lies the problem. And I do worry for Wolves because I do think their managerial situation, and it's not necessarily the fault of the owners when it comes to the Mick Bill scenario, they thought he would come. They were given nods that he would come and he decided to stay at Queen's Park Rangers. As a result of that, they now have an interim team in charge. We're told uh, until 2023, if they keep losing 4-0, they might have to go back on that. This does bear similarities with the Mick McCarthy, Terry Connor situation. And I do fear a bit for Wolves. It is their fault. It's totally their fault. And it's because they weren't prepared when they sacked Bruno Large. You do not sack a Premier League manager with absolutely no clue as to who is going to take over. If you do that, you are negligent. There is no way, unless someone resigned and walked out on you, that a top blue chip company would allow their CEO to be fired without a very good idea as to who is going to replace him. If anybody walks out on Brighton, they know who's going to be the new manager very, very quickly. Wolverhampton Wanderers, I'm sorry, the people in charge there, dereliction of duty. Darren? I think you're, listen, you're speaking my language on so many issues this morning because I think as far as Wolves are concerned, back in the last season, they couldn't score goals. Um, and I thought that what they would do, because they, they were good in other areas of the pitch, but they missed out on European football because they couldn't score goals and kill off teams that were there for the taking. And I thought they would go out and make one striker, maybe even two, a priority, but they didn't. And, you know, they ended up bringing in, you know, 78-year-old Diego Costa. And and while it might be good for social media memes of chains and lions and all that, he simply cannot do it anymore, which is why he's not playing in the, the, the La Liga uh, which is an easier league to compete in than the Premier League. Uh, it might have a lot of quality, but in terms of competitiveness, it's an easier league to compete in. Um, he simply can't do it anymore. Um, but then, you know, if you were going to change manager, which I think was incredibly harsh, maybe that was the time to do it. Sacking Bruno Large, as you've rightly said, with no replacement, believing somebody would come because you're Wolves, but... Michael Bills clearly looked at the structure there, as I've been saying before, and decided, do I have supportive people around me? Do I have the framework to be able to do my job and not get thrown overboard at the first sign of trouble? I don't think I do. You're all right, thanks. I'm going to stay where I am under Les Ferdinand, who does have a long-term vision and a plan and conditions for me to be able to do my job properly. And I think that now... It's going to be hard to sell Wolves to another manager because they're second from bottom. They're in a horrendous run of form. They can't score goals. And whoever takes over is going to have to carry the can for that. They're going to struggle. 
Yeah. Um, talking of players that haven't been able to score goals, Jamie Vardy's gone through the leanest patch that he's had in his Premier League career for seven and a half years. But he has become the first player in his 30s to score a 100 Premier League goal. He's older than Darren, yet he's powered by Red Bull. Um, he comes on, delivers, peak celebration. Love it. Great to see. Love a little bit of the old. Where was the sweets as well? I wanted those too. Um, brilliant. I loved it from Jamie Vardy. He was embracing his own character and he is his own character. If you ever, ever meet him, he's completely different to any other Premier League football uh, footballer. He doesn't fit into the mold in any way, shape or form. He is, uh, he's, 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 a, he's a good guy and he scored a lot of goals and he deserves all the plaudits that come his way. As do Nottingham Forest. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. We are underway here at the city ground. Forest have a free kick and they've sent it wide towards the right. Cook back into the air. He smuggled towards goal. Comes back to a one And he scored against the club that sold him last summer to put Nottingham Forest into the lead. Sames in towards Van Dijk with a header, steered away. Allison tries to drive in the rebound. Free kick given because he fouled Yates. He comes back towards Salah. It tips over the top of the bar by Henderson and out for a corner. It's a dreamy day for Cooper and Co. And for Nottingham Forest. Forest won, Liverpool nil. We needed a win. Been on a poor run, uh, no, no doubt about that, and I've openly said that. We've been looking to improve and striving for that win. We thought it would be against Liverpool, but it is. The reason is definitely that uh, there'll be, be missed players, and if they, when they come back, they have to play immediately, and the others have played too long and stuff like this. What a game. What a result. What a victory for Nottingham Forest. Um, there's something about the city ground that causes Liverpool real problems. Even going back to the time that they used to be in the Premier League on a regular basis during the 90s, this was a place where Liverpool never won. The last time they won a top-flight game at the City Ground, 1984. Stuart Pearce joined in 1985. He never lost a home game against Liverpool in the whole time that he was at the Tricky Trees. And once again, they have come up trumps against them for whatever reason. Forrest breathing life into their season with a mammoth scalp 
of Liverpool. Liverpool had great chances, but Forrest's game plan worked to a treat. And I must say, I met with Steve Cooper in the morning of the game and we sat and chatted over a cup of tea. And he said to me, look, we may not get anything out of today, but I knew that over the course of the early part of the season, I couldn't keep being so open and getting counterattacked upon. The, the league is so punishing. You give people chances, they will take them against you and it will ruin you. So I've had to adapt my principles a little bit and I've had to sacrifice a little bit of the forward play that I want to do. So we'll sit off a little bit, but also we don't want to sit off to the point where as soon as we get it, we then do what we did against Wolves, which was kick it long and then just hope for the best. That's not going to help us. I had a word with the players after that game and said, look, we can't do that. We'll never go anywhere. because We'll never score a goal in that way. What we've got to do is sit off, win the ball back, turn it over, get the first pass out and then play and play in our half and play our way forward, cause them problems. I think we can do it. Now, maybe, maybe it won't work out for us today, but that's the way we're going to do it. And to sit at the back of the main stand in the city, at the city ground and to watch that game plan come to life in front of you was something to behold, Crook. Yeah, and again, if we're talking about patience with managers, I think we all feared the worst for Steve Cooper after that hammering on talk sport against Leicester. To be fair, for once, the Nottingham Forest owner backed his manager, held his nerve, gave him a new contract, and there has been gradual improvement since then. I didn't think Forest necessarily would be able to outscore Liverpool. They've managed to do that. Again, it was a victory built from a solid defensive base. I think they were uh, more ambitious going forward than against Brighton in midweek. I guess that's always going to happen at home, you know, with a raucous city ground crowd. So credit to Forrest. And this is the type of result that can transform a season. I guess the big challenge now is how they back it up. If they can pick up a few more victories, a few more points before the World Cup break, then they'll be in a really good position to try and launch a survival fight in the second half of the season have to caveat that and say that Liverpool team, I feared the worst when I saw it. James Milner, veteran, out of position at right back. Two youngsters, Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott in midfield. A lot of pressure on the shoulders of Carvalho probably earlier in his development than Liverpool would have expected. That first 11 for Liverpool looked a long, long way off being title challengers, maybe even being challengers for the top four. That was a Carabao Cup team, let's be honest. Um, Darren, what's the problem with Liverpool? I asked... Um... Jurgen Klopp this. I asked him whether or not he thought that the 63 games last season going right to the very end of every competition had had its toll on the players, some of which have been injured. Jota, Diaz, out for for long periods. Uh, Nunez picked up another problem, wasn't available at the weekend. Thiago had a, a, I think he had an ear infection, couldn't play. That was a last minute change right at the very um, start of the game. Um, and, and, and Jurgen said, how do I know? And I said, Okay, well, what do you think the problem is then? And then he said, well, maybe it is last season. Um, but he was in very spiky mood and he's very stressed and, and he's got every right to be, hasn't he? Because this is a team that is actually now probably fighting to be in the top four. Yeah, listen, I think as far as Liverpool are concerned, I, I think that they're a Liverpool side in transition. I think there are lots of players at that club that are coming to the end of the road. I think there are players that are good players but have injury issues that I can't really see an end to. And those players had injury issues before they arrived at the club. I'm thinking of people like Matip and I'm thinking of people like Thiago. 
Naby Keita always seems to be injured as well. And I just wonder if Liverpool are going to um, progress from this, that there are going to be a few changes in, at various points. The likes of Harvey Elliott and Carvalho clearly are too young, but uh, uh, they're very good, very capable players, but they're very much for the future. Um, and I just think that we are midway through a transitional period for Liverpool. I, they're not bad players. There is zero pressure on Klopp. Liverpool are not stupid. They're going to keep hold of him. But I just think this is going to be another difficult season, much like the one that Liverpool had when Van Dijk wasn't available. But nobody panicked because they all knew that once he was back, they'd be back. And they came within a point of winning the league and within a couple of games of the quadruple. So I think as far as Liverpool are concerned, it's all about change. And once those changes are made, we'll see a different Liverpool. Um, talking of change, um, there seems to be a, a change in the priorities of Virgil van Dijk when getting four yards from goal and having the ability to head it into the net. Um, he thought it'd probably be a good idea to try and pass it back to somebody else or uh, just hit it straight at Dean Henderson. Dean Henderson was excellent, to be honest with you, and anyone who wears a, a cap from the club shop certainly deserves a vote <laughs> of confidence. Um, but um, Liverpool did miss several chances. Van Dijk guilty. Um, but uh, actually, Boris missed a couple of big chances as well. Brennan Johnson was guilty of missing a chance towards the end of, of that game. And Alisson had to make a, a superb save towards the end of the match too. So, it, you know, it wasn't just a fortunate victory. It was a well-designed, tactical, thought-out victory from Nottingham Forest. And they deserve their applaud, uh, their applause as a result of that. Talking of thought-out tactical games, Chelsea won, Manchester United won. Now look. Two sides very evenly matched. But let's be completely honest about it. If we wanted to watch chess, we would tune in to Gary Kasparov against that geezer who's just been done for cheating or whatever it is, the US guy who's complaining, suing someone because they said that he was cheating on a game. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the reason that football is the most popular sport in the world is because it isn't chess. Don't make it chess. You two, stop it. Put your chess sets away. I mean. To actually bring a chess set to a game was pretty embarrassing from Eric Ten Hag sitting there with a little board and loads of counters and doing all that in the in the middle of the second half. Um, it's just I I don't it was boring. It was so so boring until the end. And the best bit was the VAR, which tells you something, doesn't it, Crook? Again, I'm going to disagree. Um, I thought United's performance for the first half an hour was excellent, and if they had that clinical edge, then I think they would have been a couple of goals up and would probably have been in a good position to win the match. I think it turned into a chess game once Graham Potter made his tactical tweak and credit to him, he realised that Chelsea were being overrun and actually by making the change that he did very early, taking off Kukurea and bringing on an extra midfielder, he wrestled control away from Manchester United. I'm still encouraged with what I've seen from United. You know, I don't mind the the chessboard because it shows that finally there's a manager who actually has a bit of tactical awareness. You can see a group of players who are being properly coached. I think he's handled the Ronaldo situation brilliantly. And I love the reaction from Casemiro, you know, a five times Champions League winner, a seasoned international, someone who's achieved just about all there is to achieve in the game. Just the unbridled passion and joy when he scored a terrific header to equalise. I put a picture on social media of that celebration. My caption was mentality monster. I nicked it from Jurgen Klopp, but that's what Casemiro brings. I think he's been a terrific signing, and I think United finally are moving forward. There are going to be bumps in the road, 
But I think I'm going to enjoy this season. I'm, I'm pleased that actually you've stopped comparing yourselves to Everton and now you're back to comparing yourselves to Liverpool again. Uh, Darren, um, yeah, two shots on target from Chelsea. Absolutely thrilling. I think as far as Chelsea are concerned, um, I, I'm not... I, listen, all the other games were... were there was You could find the romance, the excitement, the kind of edge of your seat, white-knuckle ride about them. This one was one for the purists. And there's nothing wrong with that because they're two of the elite teams in the country. So, uh, and I think there is room for a game for the purists. I think I'm with Crook on this one, you know, Sam. Our, our kind of bromance has come to a bit of an abrupt end because I think Crook's right. I thought it was an entertaining game. I thought it was a fascinating matchup between two 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 teams that are resurgent and certainly the clean sheet record under Potter was better, has been better than it had been under Tuchel until he was sacked. Uh, and as far as Manchester United are concerned, the work rate, the energy, the willingness to compete is back. The appetite is back at United. So it was always going to be a clash of styles. And I thought it was a fair result. I enjoyed it. Yeah, totally agree on the fact that it was a fair result. I didn't think it was that exciting for two of the best teams in the land. I like exciting football matches. These two don't score enough goals. Leicester score more goals than these two. That needs to improve if they want to be one of the top teams, if they want to compete in the in the top four. If they both want to get into the top four, they're going to have to score more goals. I'm sorry. They just do not entertain enough to score. Um, I mean, when you score a penalty after 87 minutes as well, you have to win the game by hook or by crook. And the fact is, is that Chelsea should never have conceded that goal. Casemiro should never have got the header in. Um, they should have defended better for it. Yes, I actually felt sorry for Kepa because he got so close to that got something on it, came off the post and then just snuck over the line. I felt sorry for him. Uh, and it was very, maybe I'm tinged by the fact that Chelsea actually dropped two points in the game. Maybe. But ultimately, I, I, I said to Crook beforehand, this game is always a draw. It's always a draw. Whatever happens, whenever these two meet, it always seemingly is a draw anyway. So, I mean, why are we even bothering? Just give them both a point and then put the chef's boards away and we'll come back next week. Sam, do you think you're finishing the top four? Yeah, Chelsea are finishing the top four. Chelsea are finishing the top four. Manchester City 3, Brighton 1 Erling Haaland uh, turning full Jonah Lomu versus Adam Webster absolutely hilarious the idea that Adam Webster wanted a foul for that I thought, hold on mate, you're a central defender how, do, how dare you even suggest for one second that you wanted a free kick there you're supposed to hold you're supposed to hold your own you're supposed to be strong that wasn't a free kick either a bit like the Loris one he was just stronger than him, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no arguments. I haven't even got that much to add. Haaland doing Haaland things. Uh, another couple of goals. Webster tried, failed. Goalkeeper, you can understand what he was trying to do, failed. And Haaland is going to shatter the golden boot record. I'm still fairly convinced that he's going to get that 50 because I got, I don't know who stops him from scoring the twos and the threes. Yet when he comes up against the, the likes of Liverpool and maybe even Chelsea and, and, and a team with a plan, he might struggle. But outside of that top four or five, he will fill his boots. Crook, how many goals is he going to get? We haven't done our tracker for a while. I'll work it out while you're telling us. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Darren. He'll get 50. If he stays fit, he gets picked week in, week out. Obviously, he's not got the distraction uh, of a World Cup mid-season. And uh, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> Still only Scott Parker and Jurgen Klopp who've managed to find a way to stop him scoring. He is an absolute beast 
Um, I actually thought Brighton at times played quite well, uh, a bit more decisive in the final third than they have been under De Zerbi, but were still well beaten. So I think what's fascinating when we come to talking about the title is that even Arsenal fans are saying, well, nobody catches Manchester City. Arsenal are top of the table and they're not really even being talked about as title contenders because we just expect this City juggernaut to keep rolling and rolling. City have been the course and the distance before. They've got the know-how, the experience. Arsenal simply don't have it and they don't have the squad. And it's not just about Haaland because if you took Haaland out last season, they scored 96 goals. So it's about their experience that Arsenal have yet to develop. Uh, And also in the autumn months, November, December, January, that's when City put their foot on the gas and they go clear. They'll do it again. Um, I was going to say that um, Andy Jacobs made a really good point, actually, when during a handover on Friday, and he said, you know, the Premier League table is is not worth the paper that it's written on because ultimately there are too many teams that haven't played that many home games and too many teams that have played uh, more home games than away games over the course of the season so far. And until the fixture list evens itself out in the second half of the season, you won't get a true reflection of where everybody is. And that's fair, and I understand that. Manchester City have played more home games than Arsenal and therefore maybe haven't hit the bumps in the road uh, yet that Arsenal did down at Southampton, for example, and at at Manchester United. So maybe there will be something that comes along and and trips them up a little bit. It doesn't look like it at the moment. It certainly doesn't look like um, Erling Haaland is going to get tripped up. I said on this podcast, I've worked out statistically that over the course of the season, the Premier League season, I'm not even talking about overall goals. I'm talking about Premier League goals that this guy, Erling Haaland, would get 55. I said it on Monday night game night, the first one that we did over the course of the season. And then I said, obviously, he's not going to get 55 goals because something will happen. Statistically now, he is on for 58.7 Premier League goals. So <laughs> he isn't slowing down. He's getting faster. I don't, I, I, <laughs> you a know real what, concern. I said that every time I say to people he's going to score 50 goals, they look at me as I've got two heads. And yet, as you've you've always said, the projection has been that he is going to score a, a ridiculous amount of goals. And people don't understand it. If he scored this many, what he is five away from the total for last season's, sorry, six away from the total <laughs> for last season's golden boot. And he has another <laughs> nine months to do it. I, I, if he's, and he is not going to the World Cup. If he stays fit, he will set a record that only he will beat. Nobody else will do in the Premier League. He is I'm, he's basically selling those blue filter glasses to everyone, isn't he? I mean, we're all going out and getting a pair of those. It's going to change our lives as much as this. Um, I, I do want to touch on the VAR. I don't like battering them too often, but they had a terrible day at Manchester yeah. City where they gave a penalty that wasn't a penalty and they didn't give a penalty that clearly was a penalty. And actually, the one that they didn't give, which was the Sanchez challenge on Haaland, was... Bad because that's what VAR is for. The referee was never going to see that from where he was because the foot was high up on the ankle and he was on the wrong side. But VAR should have said, well, actually, that was a bad challenge. That's a penalty. Whereas the Bernardo Silva one, I mean, it was a dive. Yeah, I guess the only uh, positive is that it didn't change the outcome, the result, because Manchester City benefited from one wrong decision and were on the wrong end of the other. So, um, 
they'd have won anyway. But yeah, again, I think it was a bad weekend for VAR. I've mentioned the Gabriel Jesus one. It's just an absolute mess at the moment, to be honest. You know, the, the sooner that Howard Webb gets in situ and tries to take a grasp of the situation and tries to improve the overall standard of officiating and the way the technology is used, the better, because it's, yeah, you can't say anything positive. You know, week in, week out, game in, game out. Look at the Douglas Louise situation, for example. The VAR have decided that was a red card. The referee has then agreed it's a red card. Two days later, it gets overturned. <laughs> Madness. How can that happen? How could two officials get a decision so badly wrong? Well, that's wrong. That's actually technically wrong. You cannot, for whatever reason, there's no excuse for it. You can't have a referee on a pitch making a decision. You can't have a fourth official being the eyes and ears on the sideline. You can't have a VAR, an assistant VAR, and then decide the next day that they're all stupid and got it wrong and sent someone off, so we're going to change it anyway. No, that independent panel should not exist anymore. You've got VAR, get rid of it. That's the first thing that needs to go. The second thing is it was a sending off. It was a sending off. There was absolutely no reason to rescind that that uh, red card. He obviously put his head into the face of the of uh, Mitrovic, so it is a sending off. It was the right call. Stop moaning, crack on. Why you've wasted all that money and time by convening an independent panel to rescind a red card, which a VAR has had a look at and the referee has had a look at, is absolutely ludicrous. What a waste of time and money. Um, Everton 3, Crystal Palace nil. final game to look at. Can we just all stand and applaud Frank Lampard? Well done, Frank. Well done, Frank. And I'll tell you why we should applaud Frank Lampard, because you all have a go at him and tell him he's a rubbish coach and all this kind of stuff, right? But ultimately, can I just tell you two things? Goal number two and goal number three. Watch those back and just salivate. What a goal that second goal was. Even the Everton crowd were a bit nervous. Jordan Pickford played out from the back. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. They're high up inside opposition territory. Boom, boom, boom. The whole team are involved. Boom, boom, boom. Shot comes in from the edge of the penalty area. Spilt by the goalkeeper. Gordon is on hand to tip it in. Obviously, the linesman had an absolute aberration, decided to flag for offside, even though he was a yard and a half on. Ruin the celebration. Yeah, but don't worry about that. But what a fantastic goal that was. And can we just say, Alex Iwobi, Mwah! wonderful. What a player he has done. Uh, he has turned out to be. Reborn under Frank Lampard, given his head. He looks like the player that Arsene Wenger said England should make sure they look after. They didn't. He's gone and played for Nigeria now. But anyway, he looks like that player now, doesn't he? He's been sensational. I haven't actually checked to see if this is true. Um, it might be more than this, actually. But he had four assists before the uh, game against Manchester United. And then he scored that great goal against them. Um, and now he's got two assists in this game. So he's got six assists already this season. I mean, it's 12 games. It's fantastic. What a return. And again, credit to, to Frank Lampard and his coaching staff for, for coaching the best out of him finally. I, I, uh, I'm i not going to apologise to Frank Lampard, but I'm going to say that maybe uh, we haven't put enough respect uh, on his name because I think he's done a terrific job at Everton. When you look at where they were when he came in, he united the fan base. He's got a feel-good factor around Goodison Park. They're much better defensively. They've got Calvert-Lewin fit now. He's not been able to call upon him too often in his reign. And from a side that I thought would be possible relegation contenders, we're now looking at Everton and asking, can they squeak into the top half? He's done a terrific job, no questions. 
Um, quick word on the two big characters. Proper fellas, I'm told, in the dressing room that look after some of the younger members of the team that have raised the standards amongst the whole group. James Tarkovsky and Connor Cody. Um, should they be in the... Well, Cody's in the conversation for the England squad. He'll be in the England squad. But should Tarky be in there as well, Darren? <laughs> Um, I think both of them uh, are, are terrific players. And if you're talking about um, England squads and players in form, yeah, they, they should be in the conversation. Listen, I'm not surprised. I don't have any real reason to issue any apologies because my message has been consistent all the way through since the start of the season. I've always felt that the recruitment was very common sense at Goodison Park. I've always felt that there were far too many players that were vanity signings under the previous uh, management, uh, probably inspired by the regime as well. But he has come in and put round pegs and round holes, two good leaders at the back, um, three influential players uh, in Iwobi, Idrissa, Gay and Onana, who West Ham fans will be ever so slightly disappointed not to have had, given that he was theirs first and they wouldn't pay the money for him. And it's very simple now that they've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin back, they've got someone who can grab goals. And yeah, there is nothing about what I'm seeing now that surprises me as far as Everton are concerned. It is still very early, so I wouldn't suggest the you know European places will get carried away. I just think that they'll want to oh, consolidate, no, 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 no. And, and, and 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 in terms of a place in the top half. But you know they've got a common sense manager who's learned from some of his failings before, just as Steven Gerrard will do. Um, and they've got a set of players now who are really prepared to roll their sleeves up and work. And if they can get rid of the older players um, that soaked up the wage bill and wasted so much of that money at Everton and reinvest and deepen that squad, then you can start to talk about what they can do long-term. 11th at the moment, Everton. If they finish in 11th, they'll be absolutely delighted, I think, with that. And so they should be. Um, Palace, though, away from home, especially a big concern. No win on the road since they beat Southampton. In April, that probably doesn't really count anyway. Um, so it's been a long time since they put points on the board on their travels. And, and Patrick Vieira just said afterwards, you know, he's, he's very honest, Patrick. He just said, we were rubbish. You know, we didn't play very well at all. It was a terrible team performance. Uh, and that can't continue. They're much better at home than they are away. They're much better later in games than they are in the early stages of matches. But if you're already 3-0 down by that stage, it doesn't really help. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Game night uh, returns Monday night. Salzburg against Chelsea Tuesday night and Wednesday night. We've got Barcelona uh, versus Bayern on TalkSport 2 as well. And game day next week uh, takes us to Leicester City. Leicester City against uh, Manchester City. That will be fun. Um, and then in the evening, we've got uh, the match between Liverpool and Leeds at 7.45 on Saturday night. Looking forward to both those games. Uh, Crook, thank you very much for your time this morning. And Darren, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, we're back with you on uh, Thursday afternoon to preview another great weekend in the Premier League. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. 
be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.